Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your mercy toward us. Even now, we thank you for the truth that we have received. We thank you for your spirit's presence amongst us. We thank you for the gift of your people where we've been able to encourage and teach and admonish one another as we sing song, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So we come to your word. Would you grant that we would have ears to hear and eyes to see, hearts that are softened, calluses removed, that we might believe and obey. And Father, I now pray that whatever proceeds from this mouth that is not of you would fall to the floor and remain unheard. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Lord Jesus, you said heaven and earth may pass away, but your word will never pass away. So God, would you speak? How desperately we need you to speak. Have mercy in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. To be human is to be in the image of God. We talked about last week, kind of used this imagery of a mirror that's intended to reflect back the glory of the sun in the same way people, humans, individually and in community are meant to reflect out the glory of God. We're meant to reflect out the glory of God individually, and we're meant to reflect back the glory of God relationally, corporately, together. And what happens in sin is that that mirror, our life is set off axis. The mirror is turned askew, and often you have mirrors reflecting each other. And so we're stuck in this loop of trying to reflect glory and, and display worship, which is inevitable but we end up doing it reflecting back the creature rather than the creator, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 1. So we talked about humans are created, that we are not God, we're distinct from God, and yet we are also distinct from creation. We're distinct from the rest of creation. Remember this this huge concept that is fundamental for how you understand life and being and everything. That there is God, the creator, and there's everything else, the created. That there's nothing, no one, anywhere, ever that is on the same level of being as God. The humans, the Grand Canyon, the universe, angels, demons, Satan, 
nothing, no one is on the same level of being as the triune God. And so in understanding our position, understanding how will I see myself, a, a, build, a fundamental building block of that is that, well, you're not God. And as straightforward as that might seem, sin wants to tell you something else. So you're created, and yet you're created uniquely. You carry something that no, nothing else does. Nothing else in all of creation is described as being made in the image of this eternal God. Angels are not designated that way. The wonders of the earth are not designated that way. Sunrises, sunsets, the Grand Canyon, waterfalls, the beauty around us are not designated that way. You, if you were to have the, the capability to stretch out your eyes and see into the almost infinite extension of the space and universe, it is not the image of God. Only we are. It's remarkable. It's humbling. And so I promised you that I was gonna, I'm going to unpack quickly, and this is going to feel quick. What, it, what it is, that, what does this mean to be in the image of God? And then I want to spend some time on being in the image of God means that we have a moral conscience. And as we'll see, our moral conscience is corrupted and needs to be cleansed and we need to be conformed into the image of God. So we have a little bit of ground to cover. So this might be part three. Who knows? Okay. Don't get your hopes up yet. When we think about the image of God, um, it's important that you understand that, again, God's God, you're not. So that the way that you image God does not mean that you, you participate in some, like that God is in you. Remember, we kind of unpacked this a little bit last week, um, that you're not participating in some uh, divine essence, that you are not of the same essence, of the same being of God, but you are made like God. Like there's a, you know, a simile. You guys go to school. You remember this? Like or as. Simile, you're like him, you are not him. So your life is, um, is like an analogy of the life of God. There are some things about God that you are not able to demonstrate in your life. There are certain attributes of God that you do not possess, nor can you possess. You're not eternal. You've been created with an immortal soul that's just different. Being eternal means it's, it goes timeless in both directions. God is timeless, and you can't even really talk about past and future with God, but He has always existed, and He will always exist. You having a moral soul means you were created to live forever from that point on. You did not have a soul. This is not true. There, there are branches and, her, uh, and cults and heresies that teach this. That there's somehow you as a soul existed for, from an eternity past. And then you were placed in a body here. Has anyone ever heard anything like that? Okay. Um, don't, if, it's not true. 
you're created. So God's eternal, you're not. God's incomprehensible, meaning that there's no way that we can grasp all of Him. We can apprehend certain truths about God that He has revealed to us. But because of this distinction between creator and creature, uh, we cannot climb the ladder to understand God. God must come down to us. As one famous theologian says, he speaks to us in baby talk with lisps and goo-goo-gagas to relate to our understanding. He's incomprehensible. God is, uh, he's eternal. He's incomprehensible. Um, he is, uh, he, he possesses something called aseity, which means that he is self-existent, that God's existence does not depend upon anything else. A great illustration of this would be the burning bush. Remember that story in Exodus chapter three, where Moses is tending uh, Jethro, before there was Jethro Tull, there was Jethro, father's, uh, Moses' father-in-law. Um, that, that joke failed. Okay. That's a, it's a, it's a musician, music. Okay. I don't know if you guys listen to music. Um, so, uh, but he was tending his, his father-in-law's sheep there out in the wilderness, and he meets this burning bush. And the burning bush is there. And if you go read Exodus 3, uh, you'll see that the burning bush is burning, but it is not consuming the bush. The fire is living in the bush, residing in the bush, but it is not relying upon the bush for its fuel to burn. God is that fire, so to speak, is a picture uh, that he does not depend upon anything. He does not have a beginning. He does not have an end. He is not reliant on time. He's not reliant on space. He's not reliant on us or anything else. God is self-existent. And in fact, this is kind of where we, um, not we, but where the name of God comes, comes from. We're at that same episode where Moses says, who shall I say send me? Right? God's commissioning him to go send, let his people out of Egypt. And God says, I am who I am. The, this Hebrew word for to be is haya, which is, it's, it's like, the, like, I remember like four Hebrew words from, he, not really, but because uh, but, it sounds like haya. But it means to be. Uh, and from Hayah, we get Yahweh, the name of God. He is the self-existent one. Meaning, uh, that, again, that he's self-existent. God is simple. He's not complex. Now, we don't have time for all of this. but uh, Meaning, not that, he's, not that he's easy to understand as though 2 plus 2 is easy or simple. Um, but he's simple in the sense that he is not a composite of a bunch of different things. When you think about God, you don't have a bunch of random assortment He's not like the, uh, the jelly belly jelly beans at the grocery store, right? That you just throw a bunch of colors and you, you don't know what flavor you're going to get. So you get a little bit of holiness, a little bit of eternity, a little bit of incomprehensibility, a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And you throw them all in a bag and you shake it up and you have the attributes of God. He is not a culmination of parts, but that God is himself. He is simple. He is, he is not a composite. He is not a mixture He's not, you know, one sixteenth love, one sixteenth justice. You understand what I'm saying? All that is in God is God. So that's not true of you, right? You you are a bunch of stuff. Just gonna let that out there. Leave it there. Uh, but there are attributes of God that are that we can demonstrate. Uh, there, are, there are attributes of God that we can demonstrate. That we are created as the image of God to display uniquely in a way that nothing else. So you might look at the Grand Canyon and say, how awesome is God? 
You might look at the sun and the moon and the stars and say, God said, let there be light. And he hung these things in the sky. Praise God. They speak to his attributes, but you are designed to reflect his attributes. Not some of those ones that I was just talking about, but you're designed to love. And in this fallen world, we are equipped by God's grace to demonstrate mercy. Grace and patience. Forbearance. We're designed to demonstrate God in these special attributes of God. But when you're thinking about the image of God, what does this mean? Well, there's a a Dutch theologian, and I'm going to butcher his name because I don't know Dutch. Okay? I have no... So, but Willemus a Brockel. So, a Brockel. Looks like break with an L on the end. So you could say breakle if it helps you remember it. He describes the image of God in a, in a threefold way. He describes the image of God in the threefold way. There's the basis of it. There's the form of it. And there's the consequence of it. A good illustration that he gives is a painting. Before you can paint, you have to have a canvas. So the basis of the image of God is the canvas. So the canvas of humanity that upon which God is going to impress the form of his, of his image, the canvas is our um, spirituality, immortality of the soul, rationality that we're reasonable. So the basis, the canvas. So sometimes people confuse these things. So I want to make this distinction for you. Because it matters in a second when we talk about the fall. So the basis, this canvas, is that we are made with an immortal soul. That, are, that we are to live forever. That we are spiritual people with physical bodies. That we're this, uh, and that we're rational. That we have the ability to understand and to know. So this is the canvas. This is the canvas that God created with Adam and Eve upon which he is going to paint his image. That's the basis, the form. How does God's image show up? Well, I've I've talked about it a little bit in the attributes. But an easy way to think about this is that uh, the form of God's image in us, the picture on the canvas. Knowledge that we're meant for not just knowing about God, but knowing God. And knowing his world in the context of God. Righteousness, that we are just, that we are, uh, Adam and Eve were created, Adam was created with original righteousness. A natural gift from God. That he was in right position, right relationship, without sin. Righteousness, here's the form, and holiness. That there was a distinction between Adam, Eve, and the rest of creation. Holiness at its heart is distinction. That God is holy, holy, holy. There's no one and nothing like Him. And we are to live out the image of God as His holy ones. Who reflect back His glory and are distinct from creation. And the consequence, which isn't what we're going to get into today, really, uh, is dominion. The, the basis, 
immortality, spirituality, rationality, the form, the painting on the canvas, knowledge of God, righteousness before God, and holiness before God. The consequence of this image, go forth, subdue the earth. You guys tracking? I know that was thick. Here's the, that's how I like my peanut butter jelly sandwiches, thick peanut butter. I'm that guy. I don't know what you are. Some people, it's just like barely, just like turn the bread brown. Like, what are y'all doing? All right. So this is the, ba- the, the image of God, right? The image of God, you need to understand. There is the canvas and there is the painting. We're not talking about the consequence yet. Pa- canvas and the painting. Just leave that there. All right. When we talk about the conscience, that God has gifted us in, in, in knowledge and in righteousness holiness made in his image he has written the law of god on our hearts this is romans chapter 2 paul picks this up i have so many sticky notes in here that i'm not going to get to in my bible Um, but romans chapter 2 verses 14 uh, through 16 he says for when gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. So you're created knowing. Adam was created knowing innately the law of God. They show that the work of law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness. So the the conscience is where the law of God, which is written upon the heart, is brought to the mind so that the will will obey. So Adam possesses a law of God written upon his heart, and he's he's given a particular command. He's given, he has the law of God in which you're, if you're, and this is the moral law of God. If you're wondering what that might look like, go consult the Ten Commandments. Adam knew Adam knew that he should have no other gods before God. Adam knew that he shouldn't take God's name in vain, that he shouldn't create images. Adam knew because it's written upon our hearts. He knew about the value of human life. He knew that he should be faithful. He knew these things just like every human being has the law of God written upon their hearts. Go look at the legal codes of civilizations in past. Not that they all live up to the standard, but you can see threads of these same tenets because they're written upon the heart. Cain and Abel had no law. There was no tablet of Ten Commandments before them, but it was clear that when Cain killed Abel, Abel's blood cried out from the ground because to take human life is sin. He did not need a clear, he did not need a particular command Not to kill. He knew not to kill. And he killed. So the the conscience is the law of God, which is written on our hearts, comes forth to our minds. And and then we're we're equipped pre-fall, before sin enters in. We're equipped so that our mind and our hearts would live out in our wills. And God gave Adam a particular command for his particular point in the Garden of Eden. You can have all the trees, not this one. And because Adam broke the law written upon his heart, and he also broke 
the particular, he broke the particular command. So conscience, God made man, the Ecclesi- uh, Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 7, God made man upright. So that there is a conscience that is equipped and made to express right relationship with God in surrendering to his design in the world. God's law written upon the heart matches the way that God has made the world. Okay. So we have a conscience, and we see this in our text. We see this in the, in the text of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. So what I want to do, we only have a few minutes left, so um, we're going to take an intermission and we're going to come back. Uh, so that God's conscience, the, the conscience is this uh, declaration within us about the law of God within us. The conscience speaks of the law of God which is written on our hearts. Now, remember, we're talking about before sin enters in. So that the conscience is operating rightly. Adam possesses original righteousness. He's holy before God. He has knowledge of God. He has knowledge of God as a creature. He has knowledge of God in relationship. He has knowledge of God that he's imaging, the, the, he is imaging God fully and rightly at this point. And at the end of chapter 2 of Genesis, this is after God makes Eve, and you have the establishment of marriage, that there wasn't a helper fit, so God made a helper fit for Adam, and he put Adam and Eve together. And then in verse 25, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed, so that they were laid bare before God, and they were without shame, that their conscience testified rightly that they were right before God. And so because they were right before God, they felt no squeamishness at being fully exposed before Him. Now, we, you probably feel squeamishness, squeamishness already. The idea of being fully exposed, not just physically, but their, their souls are laid bare before God. Their hearts and their minds and their wills, their lives, everything is before Him. And they are without shame. This is an existence that we ourselves naturally cannot fathom. That God would know every single bit of your life. Every single bit of your decisions. Every single bit of your relationships. Every single bit of your inner motives. And that their conscience is operating rightly and giving a positive declaration. I have nothing to be ashamed of. What a blissful position. Nothing to be ashamed of. Wide open. And together like that. So we see the positive declaration of conscience there in Genesis 2.25. But then after sin, we see conscience at work again. So chapter 3 introduces us to the serpent who we learn is the showing up of Satan, the adversary, the accuser, who comes to tempt and to draw these people away. He comes to Eve first and Eve goes to Adam and they sin. They break the law of God written upon their hearts. They break the covenant that God has made with them in the garden. And they break the particular Command that God gave them not to eat of this one tree. 
And it's immediately they, when they eat, they took the fruit, ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Verse 6 of chapter 3. And then Genesis 7 says, Then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Their conscience now goes from a positive declaration saying, You are right before God. You have nothing to be ashamed of. You you are in right, righteous relationship with Him. You're holy. You know Him, both in, like, intellectually and intimately in relationship. You are, you are unashamed. And now their conscience flips. And the inner testimony says, you are condemned in your sin. The condemnation isn't from God at this point. It is from within their very selves. But the conscience gives a negative or a, a condemning testimony. And the result of it is that they're aware of their nakedness, which you immediately think of as like a physical thing, which is true. But they're not just laid bare before God physically. They're laid bare before God intimately. With, they're laid bare before God in their hearts, in their minds, in their relationships, and all the dis- dysfunction that has just happened. And what's the result of a guilty conscience? Shame. They go from bliss, unashamed, before the holy light of God, to running and hiding and trying to cover it. Do you see? Do you see the shift that sin has done? The conscience is meant to give this positive affirmation So that they might live in liberty in the full development of all that God had for them in the garden. Executing dominion to the ends of the earth. Extending the borders of the order and beauty of of the Garden of Eden. And they were unashamed. And then sin comes. And shame piles upon them. And so they begin to knit together fig leaves to cover themselves. They need this covering. They once had the covering of original righteousness. They once had the covering before the sight of God that they were righteous because they were without sin. They were holy and undefiled, clean. And now their dirtiness, their moral filth has been revealed before God. And they're desperately trying to cover it up. And dear ones, this has been the position of humanity ever since. All of us, all of us, all of us have experienced this shame. And if you're honest with yourself this morning, you might still be in that shame. Because despite your best efforts and despite the best efforts of this world around you to entertainment, entertain it away, make you numb enough to ignore it, to get you so busy so that you'll never turn an eye inward, hoping somehow that you can ignore your guilt and shame before God. You think if you can get the right job, if you can get the right husband, the right wife, if you can just be entertained enough, if you can just have the right clothes, the right house, the right car, that somehow you're going to cover up this shame or somehow grow numb to this voice that continues to tell you you are unrighteous 
unholy and not good before God. That all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so hear me right now. This condemnation is not coming from me. I don't have to supply it. You just need to listen to your conscience. Our conscience is heaping upon us guilt. It is testifying rightly, by the way, for many. It is testifying rightly of our guilt before God. And so in our desire to run from God, to ignore God, we turn away. Later on in Romans chapter 2, In that same passage, they show the work of the law that is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness. And listen, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. That the position of fallen man is that simultaneously The conscience will be accusing, saying you're guilty. You have broken the law of God. You've dishonored him. You've worshipped other things. You've worshipped the image, I mean the the creature rather than the creator. You've worshipped images. You've taken his name in vain. You've dishonored your parents. You haven't cherished life. You haven't been faithful in your marriage or in your life. You haven't been faithful to the commitments that you've made. You haven't told the truth. You have been bearing false witness and coveting other people's things. It is heaping upon you. And you know it's wrong. And the thing is, in our world today, they know it's wrong. Can't give justification for why it's wrong to take human life, but they know it's wrong. Unless that human life is in the womb, but they know it's wrong. There's somewhere deep down in the deep recesses of our fallen humanity that still knows that marriage is precious. And that you must be faithful in that commitment. There's somewhere deep down in us, even through the corruption of sin and the defilement of the conscience, that we know we shouldn't bear false witness about someone else. We still have laws about perjury. We know deep down, even as children, that that to want somebody else's things and to take somebody else's things is wrong. It accuses, it accuses, and accuses. And eventually, when that shame and guilt heaps up too high, When the landfill of your soul is just too full. Your corrupt conscience will begin to lie to you. No longer accusing you, fallen one. Begins to excuse you. Well, I'm just a man. I'm just a woman. I'm just a human. They made me do it. It's not fair that they should have that. I should have this. I'm not getting what I need at home. I had to go find it somewhere else. God doesn't hear me when I pray, so I must go pray somewhere else. It's not your fault. 
somebody else's. And we take this victim mentality before God. And what that is, as you have been trying to silence the accusations of your soul, of your conscience. And when your conscience begins to flip and to say, you know, it's really not that big of a deal. It's okay. Do this thing. Think this thing. Feel this thing. That's danger zone. Because that's where the conscience begins to be seared, hardened. And at some point, the conflict gets quieter and quieter. And you've just excused yourself in your rebellion. This corruption of conscience, Francis Turretin called it a nakedness of soul. Laid bare before the holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. I want you to sit there just for a second. I know our time. I can't leave you here though. Okay, but I want you to sit under this for a second. That, that the God who has made everything and everyone knows you and that you are not hidden from his gaze. You are not forgotten from his sight, nor can you be. You cannot be unseen by God, not just in the way that you would present yourself to him, not just in the way that you would present yourself to somebody else, but that God knows you down to the soul marrow at the core of who you are. And what you need to know in this position is that everyone, everyone who ever lives, breathes, dies, not only is known by him, seen by him, but will have to give an account to him that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And all of the ways that your corrupted conscience has tried to cover up your nakedness of soul will be stripped away. And you will be laid bare. Mind, body, soul. What will be the testimony of the righteous judge on that day? What will be the testimony about your life? Has your conscience simply accused you? Has it simply excused you? Our consciences are corrupted and without a change without a cleansing, without forgiveness, without righteousness, 
you have no hope of heaven, glory, life eternal on that day. If you go to the judgment seat of God with the fig leaves of your lies, they will be stripped away. And you will be cast into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. But even now, You're given this gift of a conscience that's telling you of a different way. The conscience cannot clean itself. No person can cleanse themselves. But we need him. We need the one who comes in from the outside. The writer of Hebrews says, first in chapter 9, verse 14, How much more will, compared to the blood of bulls and goats, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Your conscience needs to have the blood of Christ applied to it. You need cleansing from that that guilt. And when the guilt is gone, the shame goes. By the blood of Christ, His his blood flows over you spiritually to your soul level that your sins are removed. And it is only by this one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, it could only be Him, truly God and truly man, Only He can sacrifice Himself. Only His blood can purify your conscience. Would you know what it is today not to have your conscience accusing you? Not to be lied to by your own self to say that you can be free and forgiven today. To have a purified conscience and be welcomed before Him. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 10, Verse 19, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, not a deceitful one, with a true heart and full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The invitation to you, guilty one, believe upon Jesus. By God's grace, through faith, when you cast yourself upon Christ saying, I've lied to God, I've lied to myself, my conscience is dirty, defiled, guilt has piled up for me, shame surrounds me, it overburdens me, I feel crushed at times under my own sin. Call out to Christ. He is a good Savior. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The problem of your conscience isn't therapy, psychology, or psychiatry. The problem of your conscience is only remedied in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. So would you turn to Him and live? 
Be set free today from an evil, guilty conscience that's accusing and excusing you. And be set up for that day when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Your plea on that day won't be, God, look how righteous I am. Look at my fig leaves. Your plea on that day will be, Christ has died for me and I am righteous in Him. It is only in Jesus only in Jesus that your sins are removed and that you're placed rightly. Original righteousness is no longer ours to have, but we can have the righteousness of Christ. Where we are counted by faith righteous before Him. So is your conscience clean today? Everybody. Just, this isn't, I'm not that guy, but everybody close your eyes. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. But right now, before God, would we be a people who asks, Lord, do I know you? Is my conscience washed clear and clean from sin and rebellion? And if there are some here where the answer is no, would you ask God to do so, to make you clean before him by the blood of Jesus? You can open your eyes. I'm not going to make you do that. I can't do that for you. I can't cleanse your heart for you. Only Christ can. But the promise is to everyone who comes to him, he will not cast them out. Hear the testimony of conscience. Be delivered from an evil conscience, a crushing weight of shame, and no new life in Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, you are good. We thank you that you have created us in your image. You've created us both as canvas and image. Picture. We ask, O Lord, for some who are here, their conscience has been lit afire. Testifying within them that they don't know you, that they've been chasing themselves, living for themselves living in a way that does not bring you honor or glory. And I pray that your conviction would surround them. And that even if they do not run to Christ today, that or in this moment, I pray, O Lord, that as they leave here, they would not chase after the numbing effects of this world that would distract them from this spiritual moment and the burden that is upon their heart. I pray if it is by your grace only that they would turn to you right now and they would call out to be saved. I pray for your people. I pray more and more that our consciences would tell us the truth and tell us the truth about Christ. That they would be shaped more and more by your spirit through your word and that we would know more and more the beauty 
of living in Christ for Christ, even now. Have your way, O Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?